Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. Okay, everyone, Wild is having a break for a few weeks as the new year gets started, and we'll be running a bunch of my favourite episodes. You may have noticed that this is what I've been doing the past few weeks that you might have missed at some point. I've chosen this week this chat with Julia Cameron, author of The Artist's Way, because her advice is the kind we all need for starting off something new, like a year, a year that's likely to require that we have solid footings and an expansive outlook. Happy 2024 to you all and uh, keep it wild. In 1992, Julia Cameron published a book that saw the world suddenly writing these things called morning pages, these free-form diary entries said to unblock creativity. The Artist's Way was the title of the book, and it became a global bestseller in 40 languages. I remember interviewing Alicia Keys about 20 years ago in Japan, and she told me she used The Artist's Way to access her ideas. John Cleese and Jim Ferris do morning pages and Elizabeth Gilbert has written that without the artist's way, there would have been no eat, pray, love. In our chat, Julia and I talk the wildness of creativity and how to access it and how to know what idea to run with from all the ideas that might trickle in. But it's worth ticking off a few other bio notes that speak to Julia's own big creative life. She's been a poet, a filmmaker, a composer and journalist for publications like Rolling Stone back in its heyday. And she was part of the new journalism set with Joan Didion and and Tom Wolfe back in the 1960s. She was married to Martin Scorsese and collaborated with him on several films like Taxi Driver until during one such collaboration on the film New York, New York, Scorsese ran off with Liza Minnelli. Julia then descended into alcohol and cocaine addiction, psychosis and blackouts, and eventually she developed the creativity unblocking methods that she shares in her books as a way to recover. Julia is 74 now, and she's just published what she thinks is her 41st book, Seeking Wisdom. And it takes the artist's way and adds in an extra tool for unblocking creativity, and that is talking to a higher power. 
and you can call it prayer and you might pray to God or it might be called connecting with the universe. We'll talk through all of this, but before we hit record, Julia explained to me her little dog Lily had just passed away and that she was in grief. She apologized to everyone for being a little darker and softer than normal, so I figured I should pass on her apologies. Oh, hello, Julia. Lovely, lovely to meet you. How was your day? I presume it started with morning pages. I've been writing a poem a day, sometimes more. I do my morning pages about anything and everything, uh, and what happens is a poetry cue will come to me, and I will think, oh, all right, I'll try it. For people listening who are not familiar with Morning Pages, would you mind, Julia, talking through how Morning Pages work? Well, first of all, Morning Pages are three pages of morning writing in longhand about anything and everything. If you were a meditator, you would say, oh, I'm writing down my cloud thoughts. So you're writing down whatever passes through your consciousness, and you do them first thing in the morning. Jungians tell us we have 45 minutes before our defenses are up. So I say, grab the 45 minutes and do your morning pages. And they can be very scattered. I forgot to check the oil in the car. I wonder what's going on with Fred that he was so crabby in the meeting yesterday. So you, you go topic to topic to topic, and it's as if you have taken a tiny little broom and you poke it into each corner of your consciousness, uh, and you bring the debris and the rubble into the center of the room where you can deal with it. Morning pages train us to expansion. They train us to take a more benevolent view of life. They train us to be optimistic. Sometimes you will find that your critic is sitting on your shoulder while you write morning pages and saying, oh, these are dull. Mm -hmm. What you learn to do is turn to your critic and say, thank you for sharing. <laughs> uh, and you keep right on writing. So it's something of a process, isn't it? It's the process of cleaning out that junk first thing in the morning, presumably to free you up, but also to get you into a mindful practice of, well, it's a bunch of things, allowing a certain amount of lack of perfectionism and flow. But I want to come back to those principles in a moment. I might just break down some of those elements you rattled off at the beginning. First of all, you say three pages. Now, I think you're pretty strict on this. It's no more, no less, isn't it? Why is that? Well, it's because two pages isn't quite enough and four pages is too many, and move you into self-obsession. Three seems just about perfect. Usually the first page and a half is pretty easy. Then it becomes a little more difficult and steep, but you are moving into what I call pay dirt. It's a mining term for earth that's rich with minerals. You also talk about it being a handwriting and you're very specific about the pen that you use. There needs to be a certain glide and flow to the pen. And I'm a stickler for stationery on that front. I handwrite all of my books 
before I type them. I've written 13 or 14 books now. It's really interesting. I went digging around to, and I think you'll probably find this interesting, to find out why that might be the case. And I came across this beautiful essay written by an Australian writer, and he refers to the fact that handwriting goes at the same pace as discerning thought. Typing is frenetic. It goes fast. Our thoughts can't follow along or can't lead us. Is that your thinking around handwriting as well? That sounds exactly accurate to me. I find that when I write by hand, my consciousness is connected. It's as if when you're writing on a typewriter or on a computer, you can go whizzing past something important. What I find is that when you write by hand, you are more authentic. So it can bring you in closer, can't it? I think the elements that you're talking through here, it's about bringing you closer to yourself in a very gentle manner, and then an unfurling can occur. That's what's always struck me about the way you've written about having these morning pages. It's really about having a gentle relationship with yourself. Yes. What it's about is becoming authentic with yourself. What morning pages do very gently, I should say, is they puncture denial. I had a woman write me, Julia, I was happy drinking in the outback. (laughs) But then I started doing morning pages, and now I'm sober. She tackled a difficult topic, and the pages kept bringing it up until she dealt with it. So it was, you were drunk last night? Ah, you were drunk again last night. (laughs) ah, maybe you better do something about this little drinking problem. So the pages are a gentle nudge in the direction of health, that we are moved in the direction that we need to move. The energy flows where it needs to go when you're in that gentle space of allowing. And it's very much how meditation works. You know, meditation is all about allowing these thoughts to come up free form using that example or the analogy of the broom, and it sweeps out that psychic junk, presumably to allow you to then be more creative throughout the rest of the day, because the whole point of these morning pages is about unblocking creativity. Is that right? Have I read that correctly, that it really is about then allowing you to to do more creative stuff throughout the rest of the day? Well, what I find is that what you write in your morning pages are thoughts that normally eddy in your consciousness, sort of below your awareness. And when you write morning pages, you make things more specific and more concrete. You're able to sort of step beyond your blocks into a freer form. Your analogy, they give you room for expanded thought. They will bring up a risk, and you'll think at first, oh, I can't do that. And then they bring it up again, and you think, maybe I could try that. And then by the time they bring it up a third time, you're ready to just tell them to hush up. Yeah, and get on with it. You find yourself moving into the risk. It's a very expansive sense that I'm getting as you're talking us through all of these these elements. The other very key aspect of your work, your suggestion, your your hack is is artist dates. It's the second part to the morning pages. Can you talk us through how an artist date works and what the stipulations or guidelines for that would be? Okay. So when I wrote The Artist's Way, I thought 
Well, we have the tool of work. And when I would assign morning pages, people would say, it's work. I get it. I'm going to work on my creativity. But then I would say, okay, now once a week, I'd like you to do something that's just pure fun, something that nurtures your spirit, something that enchants you, something that engrosses you, something that isn't difficult, just frivolous. In other words, I want you to play. People will suddenly fold their arms across their chest and tip their heads to the side skeptically and say, play. I don't see what play has to do with working on our creativity. But what I have found is that we have an expression, Sarah, the play of ideas. And we don't realize that it's actually a prescription, play, and you will have ideas. When people are doing a piece of creative work, they are fishing from an inner well. And I'm sure you found this writing your books, that there are times when you feel like you have the next word available and other times when it's more of a strain. People will say to me, Julia, I was doing so well and then it dried up. Well, it dried up because you were doing so well. The importance of artist dates is that they give you an inner richness. I am really bad at playing. Like, I'd rather you tell me to go and work and then I get excited. But to go and play, I kind of get clamped up. It's just never been part of what I do. I generally then turn it into something productive rather than something restful. Does that matter? Like, what kind of things are you talking about? Does it need to be something completely unrelated to the work, the creative work that you're trying to do? You really need to go and do something off on another completely different tangent? Or what kind of things do you suggest? Doing things that would strike your inner eight-year-old is a good time. Oh, God. (laughs) I can hear you saying, Oh, I understand work. I don't understand play. It's threatening. Artist dates are threatening. And uh, that's why they have to be coaxed gently. Mm -hmm. I have a favorite artist date, which is I go to a toy, a pet store, where they have a big bunny rabbit named George. Yeah. (laughs) And when I pet George, I feel a sense of Bliss, excitement, enchantment, that's a very successful artist date. Another thing you might want to do is go to a children's bookstore. I find that children's books have just about the right amount of information to coax my artist into play. You go to a children's bookstore and you read all about reptiles. <laughs> yep. Or Star Wars. Yep. Or, or Star Wars or little engines that could. When you are in a children's bookstore, you find yourself curious. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that you use the word curiosity. I've interviewed an expert in this, Dr. Judd Brewer, and he talks about how curiosity is one of the best techniques for dealing with anxiety because it creates an openness. And when you've got an openness and expansiveness, it's very difficult to remain anxious. Flip side, it can also then create a wonderful space for being creative and feeling like everything's possible, that the ideas can unfurl as as they need to. 
I'd love to move on to your next book, Seeking Wisdom. Can you tell us how it's different from The Artist's Way? What do you bring to this book? Well, I think that The Artist's Way has many tricks and tools that are not explained at great depth. The Artist's Way says, try this, but it doesn't say why. And what happened with the um, writing of Seeking Wisdom was that I asked in my morning pages, what should I do next? And then I listened and I heard, you will write a book about prayer. And I thought, oh, no, not (laughs) prayer. I'm not holy enough to write a book about prayer. That belongs to somebody who's much more sacred. And you also grew up Catholic as well. So I imagine there's a certain association with praying to a God. My associations from childhood were with a very authoritarian, strict, judgmental God. And what I found when I tried to write about prayer was that I needed to write about a different sort of God. I am going to read you a poem that was sort of the um, launching pad for Seeking Wisdom. It's called Jerusalem is Walking in This World. This is a great happiness. The air is silk. There is milk in the looks that come from strangers. I could not be happier if I were bread and you could eat me. Joy is dangerous. It fills me with secrets. Yes, kisses in my veins. The pains I take to hide myself are sheer as glass. Surely this will pass. The wind like kisses. The music in the soup. The group of trees laughing as I say their names. It is all Hosanna. It is all prayer. Jerusalem is walking in this world. Jerusalem is walking in this world. So I wrote that poem and I thought, this is a world of prayer that I want to open up for people. So I began the book with telling my sobriety story and how I was sort of cornered into prayer, that it wasn't something that came to me naturally, that it was something that I had to learn to do, learn to trust. Yeah, you you write about three types of prayer in the book, you know, prayers of petition, which is, you know, asking for something, and prayers of gratitude, which we're familiar with. But I particularly like your focus on prayers of guidance, which to me is really geared at accessing your own inner wisdom, the wisdom that sits within us, which we find so difficult to access. People say, well, just trust your gut feeling and go with that idea, trust your feelings on this kind of thing. I sort of got a sense as I was reading your book that these prayers of guidance can access that. And I think so many people are trying to find the trick for accessing that inner wisdom. You know, it's really hard living in the world that we live in today where we have a disconnect, that mind and spirit disconnect. Do you talk us how you ask for guidance or how, how we should go about asking for guidance in a creative project? When I wrote What shall I write next? And I heard prayer. That was guidance. I think that morning pages open us to guidance. And artist dates give us a sense of intuition, of joy, 
of hunches, of our inner wisdom. They connect us to a feeling of benevolence. And the feeling of benevolence or expansion is a feeling that we learn to follow. So when I write, what should I do next? And I hear pray, then I think, what do you mean by that? And when I was getting sober, I was told I needed to pray. And I thought, I can't. I was brought up Catholic. It's just too difficult. And I was told, well, you must believe in something. And what do you believe in, Julia? I found that I believed in a line from the poet Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. Mm. That creative energy that's very specific and that makes an azalea or a tulip or a violet or a willow tree or an oak tree. The creative energy has a plan for the unfolding. So when I began to pray to the creative energy to help me unfold, I began to have an experience of being more sure-footed, trusting my guidance more. I think with guidance, it's really very simple. Can I hear about X? And then you listen. And what are you listening for? Is it a voice that comes up? Is it a word? And is it the first word that you then will trust and follow? Or do you sit there and go, well, I'll just wait to see if there's another voice that comes up. And Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Another piece of guidance, and then I'll kind of debate which one's best and put them into a, a chart, column A, column B, and weigh up the benefits and, you know. You're making it very complicated. Please simplify it for me. <laughs> And I think instead, when I hear about X, you're asking for your first thoughts. Okay. You're asking to trust your initial intuition. I think we're trained in our culture to be skeptical. I find you can take that to guidance and say, what is this skepticism? And you'll hear back, oh, it's fear of my strength and my possibility. So you will generally, well, always from what I can gather, having read your book and seeing the decisions that you've made based on your inner guidance, you will go with that first thought or word that comes up. You will follow it. Yes, I do. I think this is, again, a habit that is born from morning pages because 
there is, quote, no right way or wrong way to do morning pages. So you, you learn to trust the impulse. Trusting the impulse is something that carries over into guidance on your creative projects. Yeah, it's a very much a practice, isn't it? And you mentioned this in the outset of dealing with your perfectionism and actually blasting your, your perfectionism out of the water. Because as you say, there's no right or wrong answer. And the creative process, and this really speaks to me, the creative process is allowing yourself to move past perfectionism. And in fact, that's when the art really starts to happen. You've got a bit of a, a theory on perfectionism, don't you, about it playing a particular role in the creative process? Well, I think perfectionism is something that rears its head and attempts to bully us out of creating. And I think it first appears as a large and forbidding voice. How dare you think that? Uh, and when you say, oh, but I do think that, what I find is that humor is a huge help in dismantling perfectionism. So the perfectionism as well, I think you've described it as kind of a stalling technique that we implement. We're procrastinating when we're being perfectionist. Yes, we are procrastinating. And it's, again, I have to say, if you learn to, to think of your perfectionist as being a bully, that it comes to you to bludgeon you back into safety. What I find with perfectionism, there are some cheap tricks which help a lot. Mm -hmm. I have people do an exercise numbering from one to 10 and then saying, if I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. If I didn't have to do it perfectly, I'd try. What they find is, is that their perfectionism is a bully that's trying to keep them in place. Uh, and if they didn't have to do it perfectly, they'd try writing a 15th book. <laughs> I certainly witnessed that bullying voice in everything that I do. There was something that you said before that really touched me, and it's this notion of benevolence, trusting that the life force, God, whatever you want to call it, is a benevolent entity, a benevolent force that is naturally moving towards betterment and goodness and expansiveness and really, at the end of the day, love. When I'm able to access that in various ways, and I have my various techniques for doing that, including getting out into nature and witnessing, you know, what Dylan Thomas refers to, that, that unfurling that just happens and moves towards beauty and expansiveness, I'm able to really get in touch with that benevolence. And that in its sense, it enables me to be creative because then I trust that I'm in that same flow. Do you feel that that sort of that prayer is, is a way of doing the same sort of thing? Is that what it is for you in the creative process. It enables you to, to go that next step and to keep going and to expanding and for the words to go onto the page or the paint to go onto the, onto the canvas because you are in flow with this benevolent expansiveness, if that makes sense. I'd love to hear you put that in your words. Well, I think what we're talking about is a sense of grace. And I think that before we do morning pages, we may be very critical of ourselves. And we, we may have an inner perfectionist that is a well-honed bully. And then when we do an artist date, we find ourselves getting a little 
glimmer of delight. I think the glimmer of delight is what needs to lead us forward. Well, I believe in in writing poetry of all sorts. I think that that dismantles the perfectionist. I really love that terminology, grace and glimmer of light. And in many ways, it is a choice, Julia. Like we can choose a benevolent God or a benevolent way of seeing the world, or we can choose to see a punishing world, a a fear-based world. And that then can inform how you go forth, right? And it really is a choice. But these practices can actually get you to the place where you can see, well, this is actually the better way. Benevolence is the way of the world. Getting into nature, morning pages, having a relationship with yourself. The world does unfurl in a benevolent way when you access this kind of space of truth. And I find that that is the most joyful aspect of creativity is it forces you to go and explore that space. And your practices are very much about that. Well, I think I, I use a few very s- simple tools. I will say, let's take a look at our creativity myth that we all grew up with. We all know the story. It's a beautiful day in paradise. And then Eve, uppity Eve, reaches for fruit from a forbidden tree. And suddenly the skies part and a thundering voice says, how dare you? How dare you? From this, we learn that God is jealous, territorial, authoritarian, punishing. I say, now imagine that we had a different creativity myth. It's a beautiful day in paradise. Eve reaches for an apple, and all of a sudden, the heavens part, and a voice says, took you long enough. I made that apple red for a reason. From that creativity myth, we would learn that God was supportive encouraging, expansive, humorous, delightful, then we wouldn't be afraid to pray because we would know we were talking to a benevolent source. But it's tailored to what it is the person personally needs. When we have this kind of expansive creativity, God, we find ourselves lightening up. And I think Lightheartedness, frivolity, joy, all of these things are important. They absolutely are to all creative processes, I feel. I'm wondering, Julia, have you been creative all of your life and has it been something you've struggled with? You're 74 now and you've come out with these incredible ways to to get I guess, more comfortable with creativity, to find it more joyful and more benevolent and uh, graceful. But was it always that way for you? Well, I think I had a turning point when I got sober. Before then, I was obsessed with being brilliant. I wanted to be the most brilliant, spectacular, intelligent writer, and I wanted people to be impressed. Then I got sober, and I was told, now pray to a benevolent source. All of a sudden, I was writing from a spirit of service. I was more lighthearted. So I would say that the the turning point was sobriety. The other thing that I've read about you, Julia, is that you've written more than 40 books now. 
And you write on spec, even to this day, and for those listening who don't know what that means, it means you write the whole book from beginning to end and then you sell it as opposed to a publisher coming and commissioning you and assuring you of some payment and then you go off and write it. Why is that? Here we go back to curiosity. When you write on spec, you're writing to find out what you think. You're writing to discover what it is you have to say. So you're writing from a spirit of curiosity and wonder. I'm lucky I have friendships. Nick, whom you met uh, when we were setting up, is a poet and an actor. We meet every Thursday night, and our deal is bring a new poem. So we go to dinner, and we share our poetry. That's a beautiful practice. It's a wonderful thing to do, to be enchanted with someone else's creativity. And I think I'm lucky I have friendships. Some of them are 55 years old by now. I will say to them, can you take a peek? And I'll write my first draft out. Then I'll show them to my, I call them believing mirrors, Mm -hmm. people who mirror back to you your strength and your possibility. Mm, And so you use these people to be able to create in a space on spec, you produce and then and then you feel that it's in, it's good enough to go and take out to a publisher and sell to the rest of the world. It actually leads me to my last question, Julia, and I really appreciate your time so far. It really speaks to this idea of creativity and its relationship to productivity because the two go together because I think so much of what we create is about wanting to share it out into the world. But I think in 2022, there are so many of us who feel that anything that we do needs to have a productive end goal. It needs to essentially produce money. I think that that can be a big stalling point. And I know within myself, I'll get a spurt of an idea, a piece of creativity, an idea will drop And it'll be via some sort of openness that I'm feeling, often through meditation. And immediately I'm wanting to share it outwards, you know. So I'll even be in meditation and and an expansive idea will come to me and I'll want to literally get up and ring somebody and tell them about it. How do we find that nice sweet spot between having the inner dialogue and relationship with our own creativity and then taking it out into the world? Because I feel that there's a responsibility to do that. Any artist should be should be sharing, and that's so integral to the human experience. How do you find that sweet spot between feeling creative and wanting to share, but also not losing it to that sort of capitalist imperative? Well, I think we're very lucky right now. We live in an age where people self-publish. I want to say that the artist's way was initially self-published. That's right. You Xeroxed them, didn't you, yourself and handed them out? Yes. And I think the notion that we can put something into the world without asking for someone's permission is a wonderful thing. We had the pandemic and we were locked down and told to stay in our homes and not to go out for fear of contagion. I found myself thinking, you're the queen of creativity, Julia. You should be doing something creative. And then I thought, well, what I'd like to do is write a play. And then I thought, well, how should it begin? And I heard a bird song outside my window. And I thought, ah, that's how I'll begin. 
with birdsong. Isn't it lovely? So I would sit down in my living room, and I would write the next scene. And it was a little bit frightening because I felt like, I don't know where this is going. I kept getting told, just write what comes next. I ended up writing a play that I called True Love. It was a play that was born out of faith. And so it very much came from not thinking that you were going to go and get a deal, put it onto Broadway and make a whole heap of money and and so on. It was really the creative process itself that motivated you to do it. Well, yes. And I have a a website called juliacameronlive.com. And it has my poetry, my music, my plays, a movie that I directed, and it's all for free. So I thought uh, after I finished writing True Love, I put it up on the website. I think there's something very freeing about sharing from a spirit of glee. Yeah. It's very interesting. I interviewed Seth Godin, who's a wonderful creative He was one of my first interviews here on this podcast. He has a phrase, real artists give first. And it's this idea of you create first, you put it out into the world with no expectation, and then you see what happens. And, And then abundance may follow or it may not. But it seems to be a formula that works for a lot of creatives. And it's something that I try to share with people when I'm talking about my writing style. I write in a way where I don't expect it necessarily to sell. I write to share, I sort of hope that it connects with a few people in my community and if it attends to their needs, wonderful. And if it goes further than that, well, that's just a wonderful bonus. It's a really, it's a funny paradox though, isn't it? To write, to give and to to leave some legacy while at the same time not expecting it to. But then if you write for joy, the joy of just expanding, then that kind of can traverse that paradox wonderfully. Yes, I think it does. One of the things I'm thinking, looking at you, is that you have a highly developed sense of mischief. (laughs) Do I? (laughs) How can you tell that? (laughs) I'm not saying you're wrong. When you create with a sense of mischief, you sort of fling open a door for the universe to enter. I feel like I wrote The Artist's Way in a spirit of mischief, feeling like artists aren't treated very well. What do we need to know? Then I'm wrote what came to me. I thought I was writing a book for about 10 people. Of course, what we we found uh, was that it spoke to many more people. I think all of us have an inner naughtiness and uh, that when we start to exercise that, we begin to have freedom. Mm, And I think we're always surprised by how that accessing the inner naughtiness, and I like that phrase, I think you've tapped into something there in me, It's one of the biggest joys, and I think it's one of my favorite bits, is to realize that so many other people recognize that in themselves, and they're wanting to see your creative project so that they can feel connected to that once again. Julia, you have been a wonderful, wonderful woman to be in company with. I've really enjoyed that conversation, and I can really understand why The Artist's Way, celebrating its 30th year, why it's actually had a revival over the last couple of years, particularly during the pandemic, because I think so many people are needing to access that joy, that grace, and that mischief. 
Yes, exactly. And I think uh, that what happened with the pandemic was that people realized, oh, I need a way to foster my spirit. So the Artist's Way had a revival. It, it made its way back onto bestseller lists because people were needing to trust that there could be a path and there could be a way. And I think I'm a lucky woman. Well, that's a wonderful way to live your life. I love hearing that. Julia Cameron, thank you so much. You're very welcome. So just as I hung up from the call, a few minutes later, I got a beautiful note from Julia Cameron. And I figure I should read it out because it speaks to, I think, her care, but it also speaks to that almost that openness that we discuss in our chat. She writes, Dear Sarah, what a delight you are. Our conversation was easy and engaged. I felt we were kindred spirits talking from fire-torn New Mexico to flooded Sydney. I was delighted to learn that your many books had been handwritten and heartfelt. I felt we had stumbled happily on many of the same tools, including reticence at artist dates. Well, that's absolutely right. I have always considered Australia to be too far away, but talking to you, I felt the travel might be well worth it. Thank you for being such a generous host. I felt we connected across the miles. Fondly, Julia Cameron. It really touched me and I thought I'd just share that, you know, these people who have got very busy lives and have contributed much and had big lives still have the time to do these lovely touches. But to just maybe touch on some of the stuff that I took from our interview together, I've never done morning pages. I'm not that kind of disciplined, but I suppose in many ways I adopt the practices or the cheap tricks as Julia calls them that she writes about. I handwrite, as she's picked up on, to connect better. And I also do do artist dates of sorts, but it's more that I hit this crisis point, this stuck point where I'm a mess and I'm exhausted and I'm ground to a halt and I'm forced to remove my white knuckled grip from the situation and to go and do something else to fill my well again. And generally it's something extreme or risky or physical or maybe mischievous. But all of it, I suppose, is about creating a space and openness and curiosity can do that and challenging perfectionism can do that. Artist dates do it, morning pages do it. It's about creating a space so that when you do reach out to that higher power and you ask for guidance, which we all do in our own ways as we go about our lives, it may not be to a God, but it's to something out there. When we get the thought dropping in, the wisdom, the inner guidance, when that comes to us, we can trust it because there's space for it to be to be seen, to be heard. That's what I took from that conversation. And I suppose it really did instill in me the importance of creating that space first. Create the space and then the wisdom can come through and you can follow it and you can trust it. You follow the grace as a way of life. I kind of like it. Anyway, please stay curious, stay caring, stay open and uh, stay wild. Until next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.